I was fortunate to be brought up with a grandmother who told stories. She was a remarkable woman, uh, Mary Lou Varner, and uh, from the hills of West Virginia. Uh, and uh, I was—I just can't can't help but get away from the fact that uh, I still remember stories of Peter Rabbit. Um, and then there was the the three little pigs and and the wolf. I'll never forget her voice saying, um, "Little pig, little pig, let me in." Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin, and we would giggle and laugh, and and uh, we thought it was the greatest thing. The more she told stories, the better. They weren't all folk tales. Um, some were about our family, and it helped us know where we came from, um, where we belonged, and and who we were. Um, one story in particular I was thinking about this week uh, is really ridiculous, and I can't remember why we were told this all the time. But apparently, when my my dad was three, they were up at his granddad's farm, and on a hill, and the premise of the story basically is my my dad was running around in an, in his diaper, a nappy, and uh, a, a rooster just uh, lit him up and just was following him, lighting him, and they all thought that was the funniest thing. It just sat on the porch, and and uh, it explains a lot about my dad and, and some of the uh, <laughs> the issues. But they got a kick out of that. She'd cackle, she'd sit and cackle, and just say that was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. And uh, another time she was driving a car down one of the West Virginia roads, similar to Fife Roads, actually. And uh, my uh, granddad was next to her in the passenger seat, and uh, she got pulled over by a policeman. And the, the, I'll say the, the, de- the deputy walked up to the car, you know, knocked on the window. She rolled it down and, and said, ma'am, I'm going to need to see your license and your registration. And my grandmother, Mary Lou Varner, being the stubborn southern woman she was, said, no, sir. And he said, ma'am, I need your license and registrations, registration. And my, my grandma just shook her head. And finally, my granddad said, Mary Lou, what's wrong with you? Give him your license and registration. And she says, well, I don't mind giving him my license, but I don't think it's any business of his which way I vote. <laughs> <laughs> she was something else, man. Uh, and she, she really thought he wanted to know how, how she voted. Uh, <laughs> All that to say this, grandmothers are good at telling stories, aren't they? Um, And stories help us know where we come from, where we're going, and they give us a place and a location. Why am I starting a sermon by telling you about my grandmother, other than the fact that I'd love for her to have a shout-out? She's passed on now, but I'm sure she'd she'd appreciate that. But aside from that, why I'm telling you that is this. uh, What we're doing is going through the book of Exodus, and we're telling the stories of, of God's people. They're your stories. Um, those of you that are, are, are Christians, um, uh, for those of you that aren't yet, they, they will be your stories. So it's nice to kind of know. Um, today I'm going to tell you three stories from the book of Exodus. They aren't just stories that were written down by some learned scribe um, and some kind of doctrinal thing. It was a history that, that he recorded. Actually, that's, that's not the way it worked. What I want you to imagine is a truth that's so much more amazing. You see, the exodus events happened. And then old wise grandmothers sat around fires in the middle of nowhere, Palestine, and told their grandchildren about the time that God parted the Red Sea, about the time that frogs reigned on the earth. And they passed it down. And then those grandchildren told their grandchildren, do you know for 700 years... These stories were told by grandmothers and granddads 
to their children and their children's children, and they were passed down because they meant that much. Some people I know think this takes away from the importance of the writing, that it lessens the impact of the truth, knowing that it was 700 years of storytelling before the scribe actually wrote it down. To me, though, a boy whose grandmother spoke stories of belonging to my life, I see it very differently. There is power in a story, and a story important enough to survive 700 years is worth telling, isn't it? So I'm going to ask for some grace. I'm going to ask for some Appalachian goodwill. Uh, I'm going to, uh, to tell you some stories. Um, one of Pastor Toby's directives to the teaching team has been that we immerse you in uh, the story, the narrative of the Exodus uh, that's why we've called this the Exodus Express. We're, we're moving through the Exodus chapter by chapter and trying to give you a picture. So much of the Bible uh, hinges on this narrative, and if you don't know this narrative, the rest of it won't quite make the sense it needs to. So to set the stage, last week, uh, Steve Watts, who was worship leading this week, uh, uh, told us about uh, the people coming across. They'd, they'd already come across the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. They've, they've come to the wilderness of, of, of Sin, which is an uh, abbreviation for Sinai, basically. So they're in this area. Um, they had a bitter pool of water that they couldn't drink. It was bad stuff. And God turned it sweet for them. Um, they were hungry, and they got bread. They got daily bread uh, every day. The same thing Jesus prayed for uh, much later. Then they were tired of, of honey wafers, which I cannot imagine growing tired of. And, uh, and God rained quail, which wouldn't be a bad thing. They got their protein intake. The uh, bodybuilders among them were happy. Um, and all was well. But that's what's been happening. So that sets the stage for story one. It is a little bit tricky right now. I'm going to ask you to do something different. I'm going to ask you to, to engage the part of your mind that imagines and hears. And I want you to participate in the story. We won't have a scripture up there. But we're walking through the Bible, and we're walking through the important things. All right? Let's see what happens. Have you heard the story about the water from the rock? I know I have. See, the, the, the people were still in the wilderness of sin. Uh, they'd just come to Rephidim. You probably have heard of that. Maybe not. Um, but they came to Rephidim, and they were mighty thirsty. It's hot and dry there. There are plenty of rocks, but not much water. There's a hill in the background, and... It's blazing hot. And the people look around and they see their horses are getting frustrated. And their cows are getting frustrated and their pigs. And, and they think, well, we've got manna and we've got quail. But, man, we don't have water. And they're thirsty. So they come to Moses, send a few people at first and say, Moses, where's the water, man? You're in charge. Where's the water? And he says, quit pestering me. <laughs> Why do I have to do everything? Look around. Do you see water? Before, God gave me spoiled water, and I, I was able to turn it, but there's no water here at all. Um, I don't know why you're bringing this to me. I know. I'm thirsty, too. It's not like I have a, a keg of fresh water um, sitting in my tent. And so the people went away. He had kind of pushed it down. But then they came back, and they were really, really thirsty. They waited longer. Their babies are crying. And they came back and, uh, and walked into the tent. This time, all of them came. And they said, listen here, man. Did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? Did you bring us out of Egypt for our livestock and our children to die of thirst? Because that seems like a pretty bad end of the story. Do you have this in control or not? Moses snapped. He was tired. And he said, why are you pestering me? And he's prayed to God and said, you got to do something. 
these people are ready to stone me. And looking around, there's a lot of stones and not much water. (laughs) And so God says to him in the prayer, all right, Moses, here's what you need to do. Go outside, take the staff that you used in Egypt. Take that same staff. I've seen, you've seen me work through that staff before. Go out, grab a few elders, take them along, and go down by the base of the Mount of Sinai there, right outside of camp. Step up a little bit under the rock. You'll see a rock there that, that looks kind of special. And take your staff, and I want you to hit it, and water will come gushing out of the rock, and the people will drink and have their fill. So Moses has heard that from God, and so he does what God asked. He grabs some elders and walks out, and it's, they're all standing there, and all the people are like, well, here we go. And they come all out, and there's a lot of, it's a moment of, of, of truth, right, that expectation. Will it or won't it? And P.S., where's the water? I think maybe they expected to find some dirty pool like they had before where he'd throw a stick in and it'd turn sweet and everyone would be happy. They'd jump in and, and do some cannonballs and things and, and it'd be all, all fun. The camels would be happy. But uh, what actually happened was uh, they saw a man with a staff on a rock surrounded by, let's just say, five or six other old guys, none of whom seemed to have any water on them. And they're getting frustrated. But I'll tell you, what's interesting, you know the end of this story. Moses hits the rock, and all of a sudden the water comes out, and all the Israelites and all their livestock had their fill. And Moses named the place after the testing. And that's the story of the water from the rock. But you've probably heard that anyway. Have you heard the story of Israel's first war? This is a pretty good one. They hadn't left yet. They were still camped there. When you find water, you don't move. Uh, so they're sitting there by the Mount base of Sinai. But here's the thing. There's a, a, a baddie in the area named Amalek. And this guy um, in this, this wilderness area, he would, uh, uh, resources were scarce, right? There's not much water. We know that already from, from the first story. Um, and so Amalek sees hundreds of thousands of refugees coming into his area and thinks, for the sake of my people, first, I need to protect the water. Um, and protect whatever food is available to scavenge. Secondly, he sees an opportunity to take whatever the, the livestock and other things the Israelites have. Think about this, though. What we know about this is that the base of the Mount of Sinai is notoriously dry. The Israelites have just experienced that. Had it not been for the direct interaction and intervention of God, they'd have died of thirst. And Amalek knows they're dying of thirst. He sees easy prey, and he swoops in on his camels and brings all the raiders And the scouts that Moses has put out see this this army coming, and they rush back to camp and say, we're in trouble. And Moses says, okay, what do we do? And he looks around, and he sees this guy, Joshua. Now, we've never heard of Joshua before in any of the stories we've told before. This is the first story of Joshua. And he says to Joshua, all right, man, find some fighters. Pick a few guys out, as many as you can get. And what we'll do is, in the morning, you'll go out and meet Amalek before he gets all the way to the camp. We need to protect the women, the children, and the camels. In that order. <laughs> and, uh, and so he, uh, he sets that up. And then Moses says, but listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that same staff. And I'm going to go up on that hill there, the same hill that has the water coming from it. I'm going to stand up there. Um, and, and God's told me to take Aaron, my brother, and, and her, a good buddy. And we're going to go up there and we're going to wage battle. There's something about the hill that matters for the battle. He knows that. And so they go up and... and uh, the story goes like this. It's really interesting. What we find, and what Moses found quickly, was as long as his arms were raised and the staff was over his head, 
Joshua and the soldiers won out over the uh, Amalek and his troops. But any time his arms grew tired and he pulled it down, the surge from Amalek would overtake the Israelites and men would fall. And so it was a back and forth, like, like water coming up on a coast. It was back and forth and back and forth. And Moses started to get tired. His arms started to waver. And men started to fall. And he'd push back up and, and Amalek would lose a few. But he'd waver again. And things weren't looking good. And just then, Aaron and Hur decide to, to, to jump in. And they grab a rock and they sit Moses on it so his legs are, are taken care of. But then they grab an arm each and hold it up. And they've got a, a good base. And they hold just an elbow. And they hold in the staff. And all the way till sundown, the battle raged. And Joshua took it to Amalek. And even though Moses' arms were numb, he couldn't even feel them anymore, you know? They stayed up because he had help. And that's the, the story of how the Israelites won their first battle. At the end of that, Moses called the hill um, and, and built a monument and called it, God is my banner. He's my standard, the thing I hold over me in battle. There's one more story, I think, that we want to talk about this week. And that's the story of how God used Jethro. Now, you've probably heard of Jethro. He's a big figure. He's one of our, our family members that, that uh, did a lot for us. So Jethro is, is, is uh, Moses' father-in-law. And with all the trouble in Egypt, of course, Moses, you know, he's got a high-risk uh, high job. Um, and uh, he's, he's got some danger. And so he sends his wife Zipporah and his two boys to kind of hole up with uh, Jethro, his father-in-law. He'll take care of them. So he sent them on to get them kind of out of the way so that Moses could focus, so that he could focus on his task. But the time had come, and Jethro had heard about the victories and, and that it was kind of a safe time. And so he brought Zipporah and the boys to see Moses. And he wanted to see for sure, did God really do what we're hearing through, through the, uh, the merchants and the, the, the travelers, the rumors that are spreading? Did, did that really happen? So Moses goes to meet him, and Jethro comes. And what they do is really interesting. It's simple. They give each other hugs. They kiss, which is weird for us, but not for them, apparently. Um, and Moses says, come on into my tent, man. I could use a friend. And they go in and they have some food and they tell stories just like my grandmother told me. And Moses told Jethro about all that had been happening. And Jethro probably told Moses about the, the flocks and about Midian and, and about how things were going and the rains and the crops and the weeds and, and, and the pests, all the things that farmers talk about. And uh, when Moses told Jethro how sweet things had been, how water had come from rocks and how uh, baddies like Amalek had been beaten back. Jethro said, now I know that this Yahweh character is the real deal, that he's greater than all the other gods. Um, I know it in my head. I know it in my heart. I believe it. This is good. And that night, after they'd hung out, they'd laughed, they'd hugged, they'd talked about things, they worshiped. And Jethro, a priest of Midian, a priest of a, of a different religion, said, I'm going to burn a sacrifice to the Lord. Like, I get it. This is it. This is the real deal. I see what's happening, and I want to be a part. So they had a big bonfire, and they, they had a good time, and all the elders and everyone else came around, and they had this, this worship service where that happened, and then they all went to bed. But business had to take its course the next day. It's, it's another day. The sun comes up, and Moses has to go to work. So he drinks his coffee and heads over to the big tent. And uh, here's where it gets tricky, man. So Moses had set up a practice uh, where he'd sit in a chair and everybody who had any kind of problem in the whole community, and these are hundreds of thousands of people, would line up, um, and they'd come for help and say, all right, you know, you've got a direct line to God. Tell us what to do. 
Here's our problem, sort it. So he was the judge, the priest, etc., on down the line. And uh, the people were stretched so far back, and you could see him kind of, you know how you cue sometimes? You people love it. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> you start standing on one leg. Well, you, it's just like standing all night, I bet. You're on one leg and then the other, and just waiting and waiting. You could see people getting frustrated. And Jethro thought, what? So he pulled, Mo- he pulled Moses aside, um, maybe on their coffee break, and just said, what are you doing, man? What's your business here? And he's like, well, I'm doing what God told me to do. Someone has to take care of this, and it's, it's my job. And, uh, and uh, Moses, um, Jethro says to Moses, no, this isn't how it's going to work. He said, you're going to burn yourself out, and maybe worse, you're going to burn the people out too. This is not sustainable. And he said, this is what I think God's saying. It's time to change some things. Appoint leaders from the people. Over 1,000 people, then over 50 people, or 100 people, then over or 50, over 10 and appoint these people to be kind of leaders all the way down so that everyone feels like they have uh, a touch from the leadership. But Moses, you continue to meet with God and take care of the big cases, but let them sort the little things you keep from burning out. That's the story of how Jethro saved Israel. Because from that point on, they were not just uh, following a man on a mission. They were a nation um, that had a chance of survival. Those are your stories for today. We may not get too far into the rest of the sermon just based on time. But if not, that'll be worth it, I think. I'm going to skip my, my sermon. What we're going to do now is, is, is this. Some people believe that, that, uh, um, that truth is only conveyed through fact. Um, that's the worldview we live in. Um, the fact is that stories uh, convey truth as well. And what I want to do is pull two principles from the stories. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave those with you because I want you to, when you're having dinner today or going about your business this week, these are the things I want you to know about the God that, that we're talking about based on these stories. The first one is that God works through the desperate. God works um, through uh, dependence. Steve introduced this idea last week, and we see it over and over in our stories. I'm just going to list them because we don't have much time. But in the sense of of the Israelites, they were thirsty, and they had hit their wall. They were so needy, they were ready to kill to have what they felt like they needed. That's scary stuff. And then when they were dependent, God stepped up. The second story, you have people camped out with no military training. Slaves, by the way, regardless of, of don't listen to, to uh, uh, Rachel Foster or to uh, Jesse Dooley. They've, they've watched too much Game of Thrones. But slaves, <laughs> slaves don't fight. In fact, it's in the best interest of the masters to keep the sharp weapons out of the hands of the slaves. Everyone knows that. What slaves do is the cooking, the construction, the other job, so that the citizens can keep the sharp objects and do the fighting. That's the way it works. You've got a whole ton of people who have no clue on what they're doing with a man like Amalek who's spent a whole life fighting in the, in the wilderness coming at him. That's, you want desperate? Joshua, grab a few dudes. You see that pitchfork? That sh- looks pointy. <laughs> Make sure to face that side towards the bad guys, you know? Whatever you do, don't move, you know? Um, and by the way, I know you don't have a prayer, so I'm going to be up on that hill putting my arms up. and we'll be fine. (laughs) God works through dependence. When you're at your brink, that's when he shows up. Man, third story. Moses is worn out. Worn out. 
And he got to the point where he needed advice from a man who hadn't yet met God fully. Um, he was at a point where I think God's kindness extended to the point where Moses didn't quite burn out, but he was, he was close. He was moving that direction. And he was able to shift. Um, he was reaching the point of desperation, and God averted that disaster by, by giving him a new way to do things and helping him delegate. That's our first point. God works through the desperate. He works through dependence. The second point is this. I think it's important. God is a grower. God's a grower. Here's a really interesting thing to me. Um, What we've seen so far and what Steve talked about last week has been about God working through Moses and sometimes Aaron, but everything went through those two. Um, God planted a seed, a vision in their hearts, and they went and did it. After that, we see in our story, our first story, it's really interesting to me that, that I started picking up on this this week, but for the first time, God says, hey, when you hit the rock, take along a few elders. And so, if it would have been a failure, it'd look bad on all those guys, right? Politicians know when to stand up in front of a camera and when not to. You'll never see one at a crisis. Uh, but when something good happens, there's 40 of them, you know, trying to get into the, the, <laughs> the picture. The fact is, all of a sudden, the people are not just thinking Moses is a great guy, but man, those elders... Maybe they, maybe they know something, too. And then, and then, instead of just telling Moses to go stand up on a hill and, and, and you know, point at the, uh, the baddies, he says, take up Aaron and her. And Moses doesn't know why at the time, or else he would have started with his arms held by both of them. But what he finds is he needs his friends. And so God uses Aaron, her, and Moses. Well, there's real scripture up there you can, you can read. But, but to, to deliver the people. And we're introduced to Joshua, who becomes the successor. I feel like that looks like Scott White, our fiddler, but um, uh, I thought that'd be a fun picture to put up. But this is the first time we hear about Joshua. He becomes Moses' successor. Had uh, had Amalek and the Malachites not come to fight, Joshua wouldn't have been stepping up. And and Moses could have said, well, I'll just go up on the hill and take care of it. But no, he put Joshua in a position where he was going to grow and be shaped. And then we've got, you know, Aaron and, and her, and these are funny pictures, I guess, but, but you see how it worked. That's exactly how it happened. That's actually a photograph. Um, <laughs> but uh, God's a grower. In the final story, um, we find that Moses uh, is totally overwhelmed, and Jethro says, guess what, man? It's time to put people over 1,000 people, over 100 people, over 50, and over 10. If this thing's going to fly, this has to happen. What we know about God from the Old Testament, we don't have time to get into the particulars, but trust me on this. God seems to delight in taking one person or one thing, a seed. He loves it. He's a farmer somehow. I know it. And watching it grow into something bigger. And he's pleased when more people become involved and where things happen. That's just the way it happens over and again. And I could talk all day about that, I think. Um, And you could fall asleep. Um, If you're not convinced yet that God works through the, the dependence and that God's a grower, I just want to point to Jesus right quick. Because right now, so far, this is great for any of, of our Jewish congregants. You know, they're like, yeah, that's, that's the God we believe in. But I want to tell you that Jesus uh, embodied everything we've talked about so far today. And I'm going to run through it. This is, this is getting quick. First of all, Jesus was a, he said in John, he's about the business of the Father. He sees what he's, his Father's doing and he does it. Well, let's test him on that. When he found people who were thirsty... He found a woman at a well who needed a drink. And he said, you can drink that and you'll be thirsty again. But I got living water. You drink from this, you won't be thirsty again. He was about the business of bringing good news for people who were thirsty. Good news to the poor, 
those that were in need and wanted. That's what Jesus did. That was his mission. Whatever you've heard about him, that's what he did. The second thing he did was he came and he bound the strong man. He cast out demons. And on the cross, um, it wasn't just about blood and wood and nails and all that. What he did was he whooped up on death. Um, You think Amalek's bad. You ever seen a relative die? You ever face that? Uh, Jesus took that on, and he's breaking the power. He's breaking it. Death, where is thy sting? And then we find the dependence. Sorry. When you're worn out and weary, this is my favorite thing Jesus ever said. He said, and most of you are, I am. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Come and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank God he said that, huh? Come to me and I'll give you some work. I'll make things tough. Nah. The parallels don't stop there, though. He lived it, he embodied it, but he also taught it. The two things I know about the kingdom of God are this. One is, he says it's like leaven that works its way through dough. God's a grower. His teaching reflects that. Uh, Leaven works through a little bit of the dough, and then you realize that it's gone all the way through. I've preached on another thing, the mustard seed, but Jesus says uh, uh, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed put in a garden. All of his listeners, anyone familiar with Jewish law would know it's illegal to put mustard seeds in gardens in, in first century Palestine. The reason being they're weeds. When you put a mustard seed in a garden, you're a vandal. It will take over. Even though it's the smallest of seeds, it grows and grows and chokes out everything else. And then the birds of the field come and they, they nest in your garden. Nice for bird watchers, terrible for those looking to have subsistence off the land. The kingdom of God starts with a seed and grows and grows and grows. This matches what we know of God in Exodus 17 and 18. That's important if you're a Christian, if you're thinking about being one. I'm going to conclude now I want to talk about where this leaves us and where this leaves you. I want to work backwards. First, God is a grower. We know this is how he goes about his business. There is so much to say about this application, but I'll just, I'll just focus it in real quick. I was struck by this parallel, and I need to say it. Around 10 years ago, probably 12, 13, I don't know, maybe longer, um, God gave a vision and a dream to uh, Toby and Carol Foster down in the south of England. Um, and they said, uh, they said, he said, you're going to plant a church in Scotland. He gave them a seed, a vision. About 10 years ago, they said yes and came up. And a few of you were there, and you came around them, just like the elders stood with Moses when the water came from the rock. After, I couldn't help but think about the parallels, but they don't stop there. God told Moses um, to bring to bring Aaron and to bring her along. And then Joshua emerged, but it didn't stop there. Jethro somehow located the pulse of God for his people and told Moses that God was wanting to do a new thing. The leaders were set up over companies of 1,000, 150, and 10. God is a grower, and he seems to take pleasure in using a growing number of people to accomplish his purposes. I think this principle is directly applicable to our situation right here in St. Andrews. This church here is small compared to Fife, a little bit of leaven, a lot of bread. A small seed, really. But this shouldn't cause us to be anxious or despondent. All the great things of God begin with little seeds. Hear this. We have a part to play in bringing about God's plan for growing his kingdom in Fife. 
but for our church to move forward with the mission, we need people to step up and share in the leading. We need people to take responsibility from 1,000 or 4,000, and they may happen, that may happen, if you, if you dream big. 100, that's here. 50 and 10. Students, this might need to begin with us. Who are you responsible for? Can you name 10 people? Forget 10. Can you name two people? Does anyone depend on you for leadership? Or do you assume that one of the older folks has it sorted? If you quit doing what it is you do, would anyone notice? And I don't, I'm not talking about pouring coffee. Do you matter to anybody? Have you put yourself in a position to matter? It's, it's, I think it starts there, and we'll, we'll build from there. I want to close with the other truth we've learned from our three stories. God works through dependence. I was meant to ask you some questions, and I'll, just, I'll do that, but I'll tell you the truth. The first one I want to ask you is, are you thirsty? Um, I'm not just going to do that. I'm going to tell you, I'm really thirsty. It's been a long week. I'm tired. Um, sometimes you end up preaching the sermon that you ought to be hearing. Um, it seems to happen, doesn't it? Are you thirsty? How many of you resonate with that when I say that? Are you hard-pressed? Yeah, yeah. Oh, we'll do hands. I love this. <laughs> It'll be a straw poll. Political. Are you hard-pressed? Are enemies getting closer and closer to the camp of either your, your physical body or your, your heart? Um, are you hard-pressed? Is anyone feeling kind of like they're under a little bit of uh, a pressure? That there's an Amalek, uh, whomever that might be, kind of bearing down. Are you weary? Are you tired? Or are you just plain worn out? I am for sure. Um, I need a nap. Um, but I need, honestly, man, a nap's not going to help. Um, just like uh, water for that woman at the well wouldn't have done it either. Sometimes you're t- more tired than sleep can offer. Sometimes you're more thirsty than water will do. Um, uh, it just doesn't work that way, does it? Um, and sometimes you eat, you know, dervish chips at 2 in the morning thinking it'll take care of your hunger and you end up not feeling satisfied. Same kind of thing. If you're weary, man, if you need something, um, you know what it feels like. If you answered yes to any of these questions, I want to speak truth to you for one minute. Actually, let's stand up. Please do, if you would. I want to speak this over you. Shut your eyes if you don't mind. If you have balance issues, don't shut your eyes. That could be weird. I want to speak truth to you for a minute. The world tells you that you are of no value unless you're full, you're safe, and you're energetic. That you'll need to get right and fix up before any success will come from your life. That you just need this one product, or this medication, or this new kind of yoga, or a prettier wife, or a more consistent husband. The lie that you're told is that when things line up, you'll finally be ready for yours. God says no. If you are thirsty, if you are hard-pressed, if you are worn out, then I have some good news for you. You are right where you're meant to be. The God we serve is a friend of those with nowhere else to turn. Those who, like the Israelites, were so desperate, Moses literally thought they were ready to kill for a drink. This is your chance to press in and tell God what you're feeling, um, to lay it down and just get real. Pray for you. We're going to sing. Those of you that are new, come on up. We'll pray for you. It's not uh, anything fancy or different. We just, we just want to relate with you and give you, give you a, a touch. Um, pray stories over you. All right? Father, thank you for, uh, for today. Thank you for the fact that you seem to, to back up what you say. You work through uh, 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 despondence. You work through desperation. You work through people who, uh, who are at their end. Um, 
and that's when you show up. We, uh, we trust that. We, we press into that, Lord. I, just, I pray for anyone today who's, um, who's feeling like they, they know they should come up and, and get some prayer. They're just not sure what to do. Uh, the definition of insanity, folks, is doing the same thing, inspecting different results. Um, it might be your time to kind of quit being crazy um, and come up and give something else a try. Let someone pray for you. Um, let's move forward and press in. Um, Lord, in your name, we, we, we just give this time to you. You'll do what you need to. Amen.